Hi, I'm Max Bergman. And I'm Donatien Rui. And this is The Europhile, a podcast where we look at Europe through a Washington lens. Welcome to another episode of The Europhile. We have another great show for you today. First, we will talk about the Polish elections and the surprising result that came out of Warsaw. Then we will turn to discuss the recent EU-US summit in Washington, D.C. Then to conclude the show, we will turn to our conversation with David Lammy, who is a labor politician serving as Shadow Secretary of State for Foreign, Commonwealth, and Development Affairs since 2021. We hope you enjoy the show. All right, Denetian, let's talk about the elections that happened in Poland. The result looks like, pretty clearly, the defeat for law and justice, PIS. And it looks like Donald Tusk, who is the former president of the European Council, which is the role that Charles Michel currently has, uh, will likely become the prime minister because he'll be able to put together a coalition. This was a really impressive night for the opposition, large turnout, and really an underperformance by law and justice. And then also also by one of the, the more far-right parties, uh, Confederation. So what, what was your kind of thoughts on the elections and how would you break things down? Well, first thoughts is fantastic. This was just a rejoice kind of moment, especially because, because it came on the heels of everything happening in Israel and Ukraine. And if you're in D.C., everything happening in the House. And I think we all needed some really good news among the Europe Watcher community also after the Slovakia election. So First off is just, this is good news. This is good news for Europe. But first and foremost, I want to really emphasize that to me, this is good news for Polish citizens. This is good news for Polish democracy. Turnout was the highest since their first elections in 1989. A lot of young people and a lot of women mobilized to go vote. There were lines. People were still voting at midnight or 1 a.m. in some parts of the country, which is remarkable. I feel like we only ever see this in the U.S. Usually in Europe, elections at 8 p.m., you're done. Everybody's yeah. going home when we start counting. <laughs> Efficient government services. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, well, also, most of the time we vote on weekends, so it makes it easier to go mm -hmm. vote. But this is great news. PIS, Law and Justice, did not do great overall, but they were the largest party still in terms of percentage of the vote. They got around 35 percent, whereas Civic Platform, which is Donald Tusk's party, got around 30 percent, 31 percent. But in seats, it doesn't translate into enough for the law and justice, even though they tried really hard to dole out potential investments in some of the rural communities in the last few weeks. But I think they were really plagued by a series of scandals. One, the visa bribe scandal that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the fact that I think a lot of Polish citizens were really sick and tired of trying to of them trying to dismantle the rule of law and the judiciary branch in particular, and then their opposition to a lot of things that were happening in Brussels. So there's a lot of movement afoot, although it will take potentially some weeks to form this government. Yes, and it, it likely may not form until until December. Um, it's also important to note that the law and justice still has the, the president, uh, Duda. He will be replaced in two years. So there there could be some tension in trying to roll back some of uh, what law and justice has done um, if Duda vetoes and, and it doesn't look like the coalition will have enough to sort of override many of the vetoes. So, you know, Polish politics will still be quite contentious over the next two years. But I think the broader concern 
heading into this election was that this could be the last one that really mattered. And everyone was you know, looking toward Hungary and the process of a de-democratization of Orban sort of really taking control. And they saw those same trends in Poland where, uh, you know, one of the things that people had to vote on were a bunch of referendum that were essentially planted by the government that they all failed. They all failed, but they were supposed to, you know, get people riled up uh, in favor of them. Uh, the control that the government has over state media, over many of the uh, you know, state energy companies, for instance, uh, was incredibly complete. So we saw things like, you know, oil prices being lower and uh, and you know, the state media just covering the election in incredibly uh, one sided and, and biased direction. And so. A lot of really savvy watchers, uh, I'll, I'll name drop Dan Kellerman, our, our non-resident, were quite pessimistic heading to this election. And it was different than what we saw in Hungary. And I think the Polish people really stood up. But I also think there was a difference in how this election was approached by the opposition and I think by the European Union. Before the Hungarian election, you had the European Union really kind of try to fade into the background. Uh, that wasn't really the case here. The EU is holding up billions, I think it's tens of billions of euros in money that normally you know, should go to Poland by holding it up because of concerns about rule of law. Uh, the opposition could say, we're going to unlock this money. And then the opposition, a lot of the rhetoric from many of the opposition candidates is that basically, if you vote for law and justice, it's basically a vote to leave the EU. Now, they may not have been saying it exactly that directly, but it was getting pretty clear that the EU, that a poll exit was going to be potentially on the table, either pursued by law and justice, you know, that's sort of the, where the rhetoric was taking them in a very nationalist direction, or because Brussels, you know, has really gotten fed up and everyone's gotten fed up. And I think that really put the choice in stark contrast, which really wasn't quite there, I think, in elections such as in the Hungarian election. And then the other thing is that we didn't see this sort of grand unity party around one candidate. You had three different parties that then sort of all agreed to form a coalition to basically reset Polish democracy. But that meant you could still, if you didn't like Donald Tusk, you didn't have to go and vote for him. Uh, and so that means that we kind of have in Poland what will likely be a fairly wide center-right, center-left, and you know left-wing and you know different groups are going to have a very hard time governing together, but agree on basically reestablishing the rules of the game when it comes to democracy. And I think that's really important. And on the point about Tusk, I think it's really important that people had other options because he's been heavily maligned over the last few years in Poland, primarily by the government, but also all their affiliated media, but also other parties. I think some people in Poland see him as having failed in some measures before um, his stint in the European Council when he was in power in Poland. There are people who were unhappy with his tenure there, not necessarily the economy because Poland has been doing quite well overall, but it was important to provide this other option. Also for younger people who, let's say, want to see a government who's going to be more aggressive on women's right to choose on abortion, but also on LGBTQIA rights, Tusk is not a particularly forward-leaning person in that. And we've heard from from some civil society activists in the last few days, few weeks, that they'll be watching closely. Even if he comes in as the prime minister, they're not going to let up. They will keep pushing for this government to do this. So it was really important to have this array of parties that people could go to, 
knowing that it would still go towards a vote basically against law and justice. I think it's also important just to note that I think the difference with Hungary is civil society in Poland is still a lot more vibrant. Individual responses to this in the population, but also civil society organizations had more room to operate. We're not yet in a Hungary system where a lot of their funding has been just sucked out, really, and introduced some laws about foreign ownership of the the organizations of the funding that goes there. So I think that was a positive for Poland as well. I'll be curious to see how well the opposition or soon maybe the government parties can continue to work with each other because we have seen in other places first a wave of hope and then a complete inability to then actually turn this into victories in government. No, I think that's a, a very good point. And I think, look, I think the hope should be actually that, you know, such a large coalition is not what governs Poland in perpetuity. That would essentially be kind of a weird one-party system. You want to have... It would be like Belgium. Yeah, you... <laughs> well, we, we don't want to go on that. that, will, that will, you explaining Belgian politics to us, we'll, t- we'll take all that. Uh, but I think what you want is to get back to a competitive landscape for politics. And I think what could unify the government right now is, in fact... There is, you know, probably a clash potentially with the president, with, with the law and justice president Duda, but this desire and need to kind of reform the state before, so that they can then get back to fighting with each other, and then that's fine. But sort of reset the rules of the game, make sure they're in place, that the rule of law is independent, the media is independent, that will, I think, be fairly unifying for the coalition in the interim, and that the lines of cleavage can't be democracy or not democracy. They need to be policies on the economy, on social issues, on Europe, but no longer do you want to completely destroy the independence of the Supreme Court, for example. It needs to move away from that. And I think that's why it was also a huge sigh of relief, not just in Poland. And for those of us who watch Central and Eastern Europe, I I agree with Dan that my general approach is to be pessimistic about the elections coming our way, and this was good news. But there's also a huge sigh of relief think in Washington, D.C., and then in particular in Brussels. And you wrote a piece about this. So what's your take? Well, I should preface this. The piece that I wrote is that Poland's election could transform the European Union. And before I explain it, uh, I should preface this, that this is like the second type of piece that I've written like this after a European election. So after uh, Macron had won and we had Macron in France and we had Schultz in Germany and then Draghi in Italy. This was around May. I had just started at CSIS May of, of 2022. You're I so thought, optimistic. Yeah. And I thought, oh, look, we have this triangle of you know leaders that are fairly aligned and this is you know going to drive the EU. And like two months later, Draghi bit the dust and, uh, and then Macron and Schultz uh, have just not been able to really work well together. There was actually, you know, we talked in our last episode about the the Franco-German summit in Hamburg that just didn't really result in anything. Um, And the Franco-German engine is stalling in part because Berlin has this really terrible coalition politics setup that we've talked about, you know, a number of times on the show. So you might say, well, what's your take now? Well, my take We'll take now, it with a grain of salt. Yeah, Don't worry. So, so we won't grain of salt. just tar and feather you if you're wrong right. in three months. Well, so the baseline here is that Poland was a huge pain for the European Union. They 
very much focused on stoking anti-EU uh, sentiment. We're pushing back on rule of law, provided a potential ally to Hungary in pushing back against uh, the EU being uh, more forceful and how it, it used its funding and, and more um, judicious about how it used its funding. And now that's gone. Uh, I think you will have a Polish government that, by being the president of the European Council, very pro-EU, you know, he's still a center-right politician that has you know concerns about debt and deficits and in other things. Poland's not going to sign up to, you know, every EU federalist agenda. But what you have now is a country that is incredibly important, and that with all the talk over the last few years since the war in Ukraine of power shifting eastward. And in some ways it had like the moral authority and, you know, the righteousness of the East to say we were right about Russia and you didn't listen to us was very powerful. The problem the East had, and this is particularly because of Poland, is that what did you want the EU to be? So like what was law and justice proposing for the European Union? The fact is they were proposing the EU to be less. They wanted less EU. They wanted the EU to be less involved, to do less. So, okay, that's not an agenda for Europe. You're not actually advocating something that's sort of positive. No, it doesn't have to mean that you are for empowering Brussels on all the issues, but there was no sort of clear agenda for where they wanted to take the EU in the future. It was all negative about the EU. And now you have, I think, the opposite, a very positive vision about wanting you know, a stronger EU. And that's a huge shift because France and Poland are potentially very closely aligned on, I think, lots of issues. In particular, issues like EU defense, I think could be something that becomes an area of really close cooperation. Uh, we've seen Estonia, you know, when Estonia gets involved in throwing out ideas, you know, it threw out the idea for the EU to buy ammunition, 155 millimeter mortar rounds, and that took off and was embraced by Terry Breton, the French EU commissioner. And we're seeing close relations between France and, and Estonia. So what I think could happen here is that France and Poland, I think, could actually really develop a strong relationship. And I think Germany, desperate to actually have better relations with Warsaw, one of the things that I think was really negative about the law and justice government, uh, and they, to give them credit, were really led on providing security assistance to Ukraine and were strong supporters of Ukraine and found ways to work with the EU to prioritize Ukraine above other issues to put forth unity. But when it came to the politics of the last year, and even going back further, the, the anti-German rhetoric from law and justice and bring back World War II and you know reparations and demands, and it's like, look, we all get it. <laughs> That's why the European Union exists, right? It literally exists because of what Germany did. It would never have happened with what Germany did. And there's a very strong sense of historical trauma in Poland, not just with Germany, but with Russia as right. well. You know, as a descendant of two Auschwitz survivors, I, I fully get the trauma and sentiment. My point is that Europe is at war. You want Europe to be unified and you're picking up you know, starting fights over World War II history and reparations. Pretty unproductive. Incredibly unproductive and regressive and, and just basically killed any potential relationship and they didn't want any relationship. So that was a real problem. Germany will want to have a strong relationship with Poland, but Germany can't agree on anything. So the hope here and what our piece sort of outlines is that if France, Poland can really get on the same page on some big issues, that could put some pressure, I think, on Germany to say, we need to be part of this Weimar Triangle uh, group that has formed. And that could maybe help really push the EU forward. And so 
I think power now may shift eastward, where the eastern countries, the east, may offer a positive vision for a stronger EU. And maybe that starts with defense. Maybe that starts with some fiscal issues, you know, depending on what topics are picked. But Poland's going to stop being a huge problem on the rule of law. I think on climate, they're not going to throw up the same obstacles. They'll throw up some, as many countries are doing now, but won't be as divisive as they were being over, over I think, the course of the last year, especially. That's the hope. I've seen some observers say that at the end of the day, Warsaw's first call is still always going to be to Berlin. So I'll be really interested to see if that shifts, if maybe sometimes the call is to Berlin, sometimes the call is to Paris. I think it's also, it doesn't have to be just on EU defense. There's a lot of countries in the East. And a few years ago, there was actually a bit of a spat with how laborers and workers could register their social benefits and where they could stay, especially for truckers, for example. So I think there's a lot of incentives there for them to develop also a vision of social Europe, which is something that's been on the back burner mm -hmm. for a very long time, but matters to a lot of groups around, around Europe. I think that's right. I would say I think their first call will be to Berlin. Problem is, people are calling Berlin and there's no one home. So I, that yeah, you can call, but if they don't pick up, yeah. I think the other area here is that the whole effort of EU reform, of Ukraine membership in the EU, it's high on the agenda. It's been a big part of the Spanish uh, EU presidency. I think people in Europe are starting to get serious about what does it mean if Ukraine actually becomes a member. And, you know, in 2022, everyone was living this illusion that Ukrainian membership didn't mean the EU had to reform itself. Now, after the whole grain fight that we've talked about between Ukraine and Poland, everyone recognized it's not on the table. But the thing people weren't talking about, really, was that in order, I think, for Ukraine or any of the Western Balkan countries to become members, you were going to have to reinforce the EU's ability to take action on rule of law and democracy. And now you will have a Polish government that literally won an election on this. And I think we'll say this needs to be part of any new member because they've seen what can happen in Poland. And so that we need to be stronger on that. I think it will leave Hungary isolated. And I think it really gives some momentum potentially to the EU reform effort because the EU reform effort is tied to Ukrainian membership. And I think I could see Poland playing a much more productive role. No one was talking about law and justice playing a productive role mm. in, in treaty no. reform. <laughs> and, and especially as their kind of appetite to let Ukraine in seem to really weaken. So I think that's a real space to watch that's you know projecting out too far. I think we'll have to see how the coalition comes together. There'll be lots of internal politics about what sovereignty and other issues that could come back to bite a coalition. But I do think you'll see Poland really wanting to play a productive role in all of those discussions. And I think on the rule of law and democracy issues, which were kind of the things that no one was really talking about that was going to be really important now, I think there's potential for that to make headway. I wanted to maybe talk, I've been going on, but about my excursion to, to Paris. Speaking of reporting from on the ground. Yeah, so I was, in, I was in London and Paris last week uh, for a trip. We have a conference with RUSI and, and the Norwegian Institute of uh, International Affairs in London, uh, and then was in Paris. In Paris, they were starting to think about the implications of the Polish election. And they, I think, are starting to get on the same page with you know, Estonia, 
uh, Macron's speech in um, Bratislava was mentioned a number of times as sort of being this real sea change in in how they're kind of approaching the East. And so, you know, the French sort of dropping the kind of arrogance around the Iraq war, which, you know, fair enough that when Chirac uh, told Eastern Europe to, to shut up. But there has been a real pivot because I think what the French are, I don't think, I mean, this is sort of what I heard, the French recognize that actually working with Eastern European countries is a really good way for them to advance things on the EU level. Actually, they're finding now much greater alignment. I think part of that is because the US-EU relationship has really improved so that uh, many Eastern European countries that are really dependent on the US are no longer that nervous about actually seeing the EU do more, even in the defense and security space. That's that's interesting that this would come through this other relationship, you know, with the, the third partner in the room, obviously, is the United States. But if that is the case, that's great news for Central and Eastern Europe. And it's great to hear that French diplomats are really seeing this. I think that we talked about the shift with Macron, but this is really important for them to actively get engaged there. And this is the way the EU is supposed to work. If your usual partner doesn't want to pick up your call, look for other partners. There will be someone else who wants to jump on that train with you and try to push some random non-paper that maybe will turn into a treaty reform. So so let's talk about the US-EU summit. Uh, yeah, let's talk about a relationship yeah. that is uh, maybe okay, maybe struggling. You know, I think when we had this episode sort of uh, circled, we thought, okay, well, we'll obviously lead with the USEU summit because that's going to be the big, you know, there's going to be a lot happening. It turned out that it didn't have a lot of deliverables. I still think that it, a lot actually happened, but what was your kind of uh, reaction to it and what, it, what, what happened? Well, I'm excited to hear your take because to me, reading about the outcomes is just a little bit disheartening. It feels like once again, we couldn't get our ducks in a row. And it's not about saying, well, it's Brussels' fault, it's von der Leyen, it's Joe Biden. It's, it just feels like we're laser focused on just a couple trade issues, which I understand are really big, but missing the forest for the trees by doing this. It was really understanding that these are the moments where you have to send a really strong signal of unity. And it can't just be a vague statement about it when you come out of it, because you know everyone is going to be looking for action. Were you able to resolve these disputes that have dragged on for a while? And when you're not, it just doesn't really matter the statement you make about the fact that we're still the closest of friends. People wanted to see action. And it feels to me like we didn't see a lot. And on the EU side, to point maybe some finger somewhere, there was disagreement or visible disagreement between the different parties coming into it on Israel, for example. And that is not a great look coming into this with that and reports that the night before they were still trying to find a solution. So I'm not super heartened by what came out of it. But please Make me feel better about it. Yeah, I mean, again, this is sort of glass half full. I think, look, it's disappointing that on the effort to have a green steel deal and a critical minerals agreement that they didn't get it over the line. That's disappointing because part of the reason for big summits, you know, when you have presidents, you know, in the room is that that creates pressure down for everyone to compromise and, and reach agreement. And this actually was a point that came up in some of the meetings I had in Paris, is that one of the challenges for the United States in having to sort of grapple with the EU in a more geopolitical EU is that the power balance is fairly even, right? This isn't a security discussion. This isn't a discussion about how great America is for, for European security. So if we're talking about, you know, at a NATO level, you know, that's just like US calls the shots. 
But when it's an U.S. EU conversation, no, that's like you know the trade relationship. Yeah, that's very... economies are they're roughly the same size, and so you're not just going to like back down because oh, there's some larger bilateral interest. And I think one of the things is that there hasn't been a larger bilateral interest for the EU to preserve the relationship with Washington because Washington didn't care about the relationship with the EU. There was no relationship, so there is just now starting to be one. And so what that means is that there's going to be a lot of this. There's going to be a lot of showdowns where neither side can really figure out, like, how to work with the other. And, like, why aren't they backing down? Like, why are they insisting on embracing the WTO? You know, <laughs> that's probably in, in Washington, not agreeing with our anti-China green steel deal. And I'm sure, they're, you know, the same thing is coming back from Brussels. But that's why it's going to be a bit more of a slog. It's going to probably take a lot more of us getting used to it, a used to the relationship and more happening. And it's going to be hard to resolve disputes that are locked in, right? The hope is that what it does is prevent many of these disputes from happening again in the future and really aligning. But what I found comforting is like, look, I think it was in the Roosevelt room where you had you know everyone convening, but this wasn't just a photo op. I mean, they started it with a photo op, but you had the president's. You had Burrell, the high representative, but you also had Joe Biden, Tony Blinken, Gina Raimondo. You had very senior people on the U.S. side, very senior people on the EU side. And I think that's a recognition of the importance. The photo ops were there, so they had the photo ops. You know, Obama skipped this in 2010. So there's sort of still this inbuilt recognition that this relationship really matters. And then, you know, when it comes to the EU being, you know, in sixes and sevens over Israel and Gaza, you know, I guess I have my sympathies. And I think the criticism of von der Leyen, I think, was totally on point. But I also think it's one thing to criticize her on the policy, but then to say, well, she's going outside her competencies, I find a completely ridiculous argument. And it was clear that one of the benefits that she sees from really going to Israel and adopting, I think, what is a pretty pro-Israeli line or supportive of Israel is that that was like music to the White House's ears. Mm. And you could see that in the kind of eight minute YouTube video that was posted of that meeting where she leads with talking about Israel. And, you know, that was not coordinated, but that's smart diplomatic politics. And it's really important, I think, for the U.S. and EU to be on the same page. And there was a clear connection in that room. So I think we got to get through these issues. You know, bureaucrats figure it out. Like, I don't I don't know what the answer is. And it may not be solvable on some on the green steel deal that was proposed now a while ago. Was it at COP in, uh, in, in Glasgow? So disappointing that there's no hard deliverables. Photo ops were good. No one's thinking, I think, less of the EU in Washington because, like, they couldn't get aligned on Israel-Gaza. That... And to be clear, there is dissent within parts of the U.S. government as well. I'm not trying to say this is one line throughout, but the optics are different. Well, I mean, the benefit of having a closed foreign policy system like the United States, where the president makes the decision on what the U.S. policy is, is that when he says it, that's what U.S. policy is. So, yes, are there lots of discussions and fretting? Is what the U.S. is saying publicly the same thing that they're saying to the Israelis behind closed doors? Like, absolutely not. But I think the problem, and we've talked about this, is that EU foreign policy is oftentimes conducted publicly. And so everyone can sort of see the internal divisions between countries, between various leaders, and you know, that's not great. But, you know, when you do your treaty reform, 
could maybe solve that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, that's it. That's the only thing they have to do, which is really a walk in the park. I feel a little bit better about it. So thank you for that. <laughs> maybe it's because we are so in the weeds on it. We want to start seeing results. But the first steps are to have more of those high level meetings, showing respect for the other side as well, from the US to the EU, seeing all of these five different people represented for the European institutions. But I think what we have to look forward to as well is the next uh, Trade and Technology Council. I think there will be attempts through that one because they have, what, 10 working groups that some of which can address some of these issues, hopefully try to keep working at this based on whatever they got in terms of marching orders from last week. But for me, it's still a bit of a draw in, yeah, the, no, in I, what we got out of this. So At, at the very least, the, the president in his statements, the president uh, Biden, I should specify, did say that, you know, USE relations have never been stronger and they endeavor to strengthen the relationship. And I think that's occurred and is occurring. But yes, I think the Trade and Technology Council is something that we'll definitely have to look at. And then also we're getting into a point where it's election year next year, then it'll sort of be new teams mm -hmm. uh, picking this up and in, in by new teams, even if it's Biden you know, yeah, 2.0, there'll, there'll be new people in, in place and you know, maybe the, the issues around the WTO and the Green Steel deal could be reconciled. Hopefully they can just do it, you know, in the next few months or before before we get that. Far. Yeah, that it might serve as a good element of pressure Yeah, to get that locked in. Well, I think that's sort of covers a, a busy week in European affairs. Now, please stick with us for our incredibly interesting conversation with the shadow foreign secretary, David Lammy of the Labor Party. Uh, this conversation was recorded a few weeks ago, so before the crisis in Israel and Gaza erupted. Uh, so that is not part of the conversation, but it was a really fascinating conversation. You can find the conversation in its entirety on our CSIS YouTube page, and we'll put a link in the show notes. David, it is, it is a real pleasure to have you. Uh, David Lamy is the member of parliament for Tottenham and the shadow foreign secretary for the UK. Uh, and he's one of the leading agenda setters in the fields of social activism, diversity, and multiculturalism. He was a member of the previous Labour government from 2001 to 2010, uh, and he's respected, I think, really across the party spectrum, and is a well-known figure amongst the general public uh, in the UK, and I think increasingly here in, in the United States. He was also shadow justice secretary from April 2020 until November 2021, and has served as shadow secretary of state for foreign, commonwealth, and development affairs since November 2021. When it comes to to Brexit, there there's you know one sort of view that essentially the special relationship may have lost some of its importance, especially to, to Washington with the UK not being our sort of uh, EU translator uh, anymore. That we could sort of tap you on the shoulder to say what is actually happening in Brussels. Do we need to pay attention? Uh, and then then you know I think you rightly pointed to the the change in governments, the the sort of confusion over UK's direction. Uh, has the special relationship lost its its shine a little bit? Is that well? I think it's fair probably. It, it, I think it's right to say a few things. Um, there was a miscalculation 
by Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, uh, Rishi Sunak in relation to the trade deal that mm-hmm. they promised the British people they would get with the United States um, that hasn't materialized. Mm-hmm. And, and at the time, I, I seem to remember um, Barack Obama signaled that, you know, the United States is in a slightly different place in relation to trade deals and, and, and the Labour Party at that time warned. So that, that's one issue. I think a second major issue that caused lots of bipartisan concern in Washington was the UK government's approach to Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, the manner of leaving the European Union opening up wounds in, in Northern Ireland that, that were not dealt with very well. Um, and real concern, I think, on the Hill, um, uh, which Rishi Sunak has moved to ease, mm-hmm. with the support, by the way, of the Labour Party. We were very concerned um, uh, about that. And our approach is, yes, we are outside of the European Union, um, and we are not going to reopen a debate about the single market and the customs union. But that does not mean that we are not wanting to be as close as we can to our European partners and allies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was a low moment when Liz Truss described um, President Macron as a foe um, uh, or an enemy. I mean, I just, that was just bizarre. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are really clear, and it was wonderful to be with Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party in uh, Paris uh, just two days ago, and to see the reception that we got, we are we want strong bilateral relations with our European partners. Uh, we believe that we can review the trade deal in 2025 um, uh, fundamentally. We're not naive mm-hmm. about some of the restrictions that exist in relation to the European Union, but we do think we can um, uh, produce a better deal that's not just in the interests of uh, the UK, but the European Union as well. And clearly the world has moved on. It's moved on as a result of the war in Ukraine. Uh, It's moved on as a result of this tense geopolitical moment. Also a sort of weaponized interdependence where we have got, um, uh, you know, energy, uh, uh, automation, uh, AI potentially being used in this weaponized way by our uh, political opponents and autocrats in different parts of the world. Um, So we have to hang together, Mm -hmm. particularly also in the race to deal with the climate emergency and as we make this transition. And I I look at what the current administration is doing in relation to the Inflation Reduction Act. And whilst it's been a little bit bumpy in relation to allies and partners, clearly we in the British Labour Party have our own plan, the Green Prosperity Plan. We want to work in partnership with progressives across the world who recognize that it's hugely important that we are not dependent on autocrats for energy, that we um, move quickly um, with the best research, the best innovation uh, to make this transition. And we do it in a way uh, where we can work um, with allies, we can assist the global south um, as they make that transition as well, and we can ensure that we do. We are tough with our our uh, political opponents and those who might do us harm in relation to important technology and uh, security. Mm-hmm. 
I want to maybe go back to just the future relationship you see with the European Union. Uh, uh, Keir Starmer was was with uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, this week, um, and it seems like the Labour Party strategy here is to sort of gradually build relations back uh, with the EU, that this isn't sort of running back into uh, a new sort of Vegas marriage. It, it's the, you're going to sort of take it slow to sort of uh, rebuild relations. One area where I think the Labor Party has outlined where they would like to uh, renew cooperation is in the defense field and really seeing the EU sort of emerge in the wake of the war in Ukraine as a more um, potent defense actor starting to mobilize more resources. Is that an area where you're going to prioritize sort of uh, build, rebuilding UK-EU ties? It was very important to be in Paris this week. You know, the UK-France combined represents more than 50% of Europe's defence capacity. Um, we are the underpinning, along with the United States, uh, of NATO. Um, and we do believe, and it's received very warmly, um, in Brussels and in Europe, that a new security pact um, um, is essential in the way that we approach our relationship with the European Union. Um, you talked about a Vegas marriage. <laughs> Let me use another marriage parallel, which is that, and your viewers know this, we had the most bitter of divorces. Mm -hmm. It was protracted. It went on for many years. Some might say, that the custody arrangements, the custody of the children was only settled a few months ago with the Windsor framework following the problems that came out of Northern mm -hmm. Ireland. Um, trust is low. Trust has been very low, lower than seen it for many, many years. We have to rebuild that trust um, and we have to build. Um, and we think that that building begins with the review of our trading arrangements with the European Union in 2025. Um, I think there'll be a tonal shift with a change of government because our attitude to Europe is mm -hmm. just so very different to um, the Conservatives. There aren't the big divides. Uh, we, we are not a party that seeks to weaponize our relations with the, with, the, uh, with the global community and certainly not with our European allies. So the tone will shift substantially and that presents opportunities. And of course, then there are initiatives within the European Union themselves. The President Macron um, is doing a lot of thinking around um, the concentric circles of mm -hmm. those within Europe, yeah. some wanting to go a lot faster than others. Um, um, uh, and London will be hosting um, uh, this new um, uh, coming together of those on the outer edges of mm -hmm. Europe. You were talking about, um, you know, uh, countries in the Balkans and mm -hmm. um, countries that are not in the currently in the European Union family, and that obviously includes the the, the UK. So there are opportunities there as well that we're open to um, um, exploring. But the key thing I'd want to emphasise is trust was low. We want to fix that. We then want to build on the relationship that we have um, uh, that we have struck, that we we think we can build on. Um, the mood music I get, and I, I you know, uh, whether it's Sweden or Finland or Berlin, I've been to several times, or Paris, um, um, uh, or Ukraine, you know, as I 
tour different European capitals. Um, um, it's, uh, one ambassador described it, listening to the Labour Party, like um, honey on toast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> There's just a different attitudinal response. And yeah. I think that Europe wants to turn the page yeah. on, on those Brexit years. Yeah, and I think... Uh, from a Washington perspective, there's a lot of concern about the future of UK-EU relations, and they were headed to sort of be allies and partners for us that were constantly at odds. And I think the at least the shift to a, a bit more of a pragmatic relationship with Sunak has been, I think, welcome here. But I think Washington fully backs and supports well, the well, underneath stronger that, relationship. Underneath that is an important point. Um, and there are elements within both our countries that can be isolationist, insular, um, populist. Um, that populism, by the way, can come from the left and the right. Yeah. And, and we had a bit of that in the Jeremy Corbyn period in the Labour Party. And um, this is not a time um, for countries that were so key to that post-Second World War arrangement that, that more, gave the world a lot more peace than it had seen in the century before to turn their backs on the rule of law. We've got to look outward and we've got to be strong allies. We've got to be in partnership together. We've got to race uh, on this um, new industrial revolution um, and the industries of the future and the clean energy that we all need, clearly. And we've got to be in partnership together, I think, over this next period. It's a very, very challenging, rocky period. We've got the war in Ukraine and the tyranny of Vladimir Putin. And we've got real concerns, obviously, in the China Seas as well and Taiwan Straits. David, let me thank you so much for, for joining you. us. That's great. It was a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for today's episode. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. You may also be interested in our sister podcast, Russian Roulette, which covers the latest on Vladimir Putin's Russia and the ongoing war in Ukraine. Our thanks to our producer, Michael Kohler, and to Sarah Stromberg and Otto Svensson for recording and researching this episode. Sadly, this will be Sarah's last episode with us. She's done an amazing amount of work getting us ready so that when we talk about all these crucial issues, we sound informed and we are ready with analysis for you. So we are very, very thankful to Sarah for all her work on the Europhile. We'll be back soon with another assessment of Europe through a Washington lens. Until next time.